today we are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Before we get there, I hope you brought your booklet. I know we've had a two-week um, intermission where we focus on God's mission to the nations, um, but I hope you brought that. This is a really significant text today with some really great stuff in it. Just want to follow up on last week's missions conference. We had the commitment cards that we gave out last week, and if you were not here, we would love for you to pick one of these up there on the back um, pub table back there on your way out. And it's the thing that every year we ask as a response to God's call for the missions. It wasn't that a great conference last week, those of you who were here, the worship, yeah, everything. The speaker, Andrew, was great, just hearing from all the missionaries, getting to meet them and talk to them. Um, that was powerful as always. And the things, the response that we are asking every year is to ask the question, Lord, do you want me to go? Um, that could be like maybe you're shifting my vocation or my, not even my vocation, maybe I'm going to apply my vocation overseas. We heard that two weeks ago. That's what the Cathcarts have done. God has moved them from going on short-term trips to 20 years in. Now he's actually moving them down there. Or it could be you're going to go on a short-term trip, and I hope you're not like, okay, I don't know if, if God in 20 years is going to do that. I'm not sure. Um, we just trust Him. But if you've never gone on the Christmas trip or the spring break trip, we would really encourage you to do that. So that's one of the responses is going. Another is in welcoming. The God has brought the nations to us. Um, the international, there's international students here that God has brought, many of them hungry to, to, to get to know Him. And that ministry's been going on here since the mid-80s for a long time. And a, a way you can do that is we've got Thanksgiving coming up. You could host a student for that. Uh, in the summers, we have conversation partners. That's a way that we can be welcoming to that group. Um, we've got a group that worships with us every Sunday. Welcoming is just stepping up and saying hi and introducing yourself and getting to know them. Sending is another way. And we've always had a very strong missions budget, continue to do so. You've been very generous towards that. And if, you, if you've been new to 12 since our last missions conference, our budget, we've got our kind of our normal local budget. Anytime you give online or if you ha use the envelopes that we have, you'll see that, that, on, that local missions budget. Um, and the other big one is the missions budget. And we ask everybody to prayerfully be involved in that, in giving towards that. And again, you guys have been so generous. A third of our budget actually goes to what God's doing globally. Is that not cool? That's, not, that's, that's really cool. Um, and also by sending, by adopting a missionary, picking maybe somebody you've heard or you met last week, and I want to specifically get their letter sent to me, and I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to occasionally email them back. They're missionaries. When I get their prayer letter, I usually email back a response from something they've said a way to encourage them or a way I'm praying for them, um, sending them a care package when they come to town, you know, you go get together with them. And then finally is mobilizing. That's the other way that we can respond, that I want to be a part of what God's doing with the nations um, by helping to mobilize. And I love what Andrew said last week, because in my mind, this was my, the primary way of doing this was I want to be a part of that um, that missions team that helps mobilize our body, and there is uh, always a need for that. But he was even encouraging us, I can mobilize, one, as, a, as parents and especially as a head of a household, I can mobilize my own family for missions. I can make it a priority that we're reading missionary books to our children, that part of what we're doing is we're praying for our missionary together, or that I can mobilize my own friends. So if you were here and if you're regular in the missions conference, I've thought about this. Like next year, let's have an emphasis on if that's something you do, there are a lot of people who don't do those extra nights 
who don't know the blessing of it. I had somebody last week told me who had been for the first time to the whole thing. They're like, that was so powerful. So maybe next year we could all invite a friend and bring them with us, right? That's a way to mobilize. Um, And then on the back of the card, it just talks about some practices we can do to grow our heart for the nation. So if you don't have that, grab one on the way out. And just please be prayerful is the way that God wants you to respond to all of that. So can we do that as God's people? Let's do that. All right, so we are in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you're in, your, in the booklet, it is page 42, page 42, and if you don't have them numbered, at the top, it's really, because I said we're going to be in chapter 8, at the top you'll see 733 begins it. And there's a reason, because in Hebrew, this is actually the beginning, I mean, they don't even have chapters, this is the beginning of this section. Whoever that dude was about um, 500 years ago who first put verses in the Latin Bible that then got into all of our Bibles, uh, he kind of blew it on this one because verse 33 of chapter 7 actually goes with the content of verse 8. So you see 733 up in the top, and that's what we're going to be doing. Now before we get in, a few things, Um, because when we come to chapter 8, we are now in the last major section of the book. If you... um, If you look at the very first page of your booklet, I've got the outline of the book of Nehemiah, and you'll see that the book of Nehemiah is divided into three primary parts. We see Nehemiah um, as a cupbearer in chapter 1 and the first 10 verses of chapter 2. We see Nehemiah as the leader of the builder of the wall in chapter 211 to the end of chapter 6. And then when we get into chapter 7 to the end of the book, we see Nehemiah as governor of the people. And the majority of the book is in those last two sections. That's where we've been, and now we're shifting into that last section. And so those two major sections, what they're about is um, the first, that second major section is about Nehemiah working without. It's the work without, it's the work on the wall, on reconstruction and restoring of the wall. And then the part that we're entering into now is the work within. It is about the community of God's people, the Jewish people. And it's about renewal, their renewal, and the restoring of them now that they've finished the wall. And so we're going to be spending the rest of our time in Nehemiah in that third section. little background before getting into chapter 8. We were told in Nehemiah 6.15 that the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. In 52 days. Um, I mentioned this on the podcast. I didn't mention it the Sunday I talked about this. But when we were in Israel, we got to see, they have discovered a portion of Nehemiah's wall, and we actually got to see it in the old city down below the Temple Mount. And I was just reading again about that, and the archaeologists who discovered that said they found that um, they part, that the wall was completed in 52 days was an amazing task. If you remember, like a mile and a half circumference, um, 15 feet high, it was a big deal, all the stone had been tumbled down sheet. They found that whoever built that part of the wall, it was, it, was, it was good, but they could tell it was done quickly, and it wasn't done as well as a wall is usually done. I mean, if you remember, they had perfume makers and they had the pastors who were building the wall, so it makes sense that it wasn't super great, right? But it, it, did, it did what it was supposed to. And so they finished in the month of Elul, and I want to show you, it's kind of hard to see, but the month of Elul is down here. Um, It's the sixth month when the wall was completed. I just want to retrace his steps to this point, because first he heard about 
the condition of Jerusalem, and he began praying that God would send him in the month of Kislev over here. And then he prayed, if you remember, for four months, and then in the month of Nisan, God gave him the opportunity to share his heart with the, with the king, King Artaxerxes, who then sent him in the month of Nisan. Um, he likely arrived in Jerusalem at the beginning of the month of Tammuz. That was probably a two-and-a-half-month journey to get there, if you remember. And then they began rebuilding the wall at the end of the month of Tammuz, finishing it in 50 days in the month of Elul. And as you can, if you can tell, the Elul was the sixth month. If you start at Nisan, it was the sixth month of the Jewish religious calendar. It was there August, September. So they just left the month of Elul um, a little, not too far back if you were in that Hebrew culture. So now to today's text. Chapter 7, verse 33 is where we're going to start our reading. And again, I'm going to pump the brakes some, but I think you're used to it by now. So, verse, chapter 7, verse 33. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, and I'm going to stop right there, okay? Because there's two important things immediately in this first verse that's important. The second is it says the Israelites had settled in their towns. And if you remember in chapter 4, when they first started facing opposition and the threat of attack, that Nehemiah, one of the things he instituted is he had all the men who were living in the outlying towns to move into the city and stay in the city day and night until the task was completed. And so now that it's completed, those people are, are they're allowed to move back out of Jerusalem to their own towns. We're also told this happened in the seventh month. So we just saw the wall was completed in Elul in the sixth month. So in chapter 8, we're in the month of Tishri, which is the seventh month in the Jewish religious category calendar, which would be September, October. So they just left that month if you're a Jewish person still celebrating that calendar. So back to chapter 7, verse 33. So when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So we're going to stop for a minute. It's the beginning of the seventh month, the month before Tishri, I mean the month of Tishri. All the people have gathered at the water gate. Here is that map of Jerusalem again. You can see the temple up top. The water gate was in the southern part of the city on the eastern side. And it was called the water gate because it was the primary gate you went through to access their primary water source, which was the spring of Gihon, which was down in the valley, right down in the valley. And I, we want to know, so this is where they gather, interestingly, not up by the temple, but they're gathering in the places where just everyday people work and live. And we know it's a significant gathering because we're told that all the people gathered. And Nehemiah says they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. So they're requesting the word of God. And the book of the law of Moses would be the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And this is the first mention we see of Ezra in Nehemiah's book. As it says, he was a priest. We're going to see him later in this book. He was a very central figure at this time. Um, and if you look back to page 3, so if you go back to page 3, when you see the three returns to Jerusalem, Ezra was the leader of the second return. And he returned in order to lead a spiritual renewal among the people that were in Jerusalem. He returned in 458 B.C. Um, if I remember right, it's 13 years, 13 years before Nehemiah's return. If you want to read about Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah is in the Old Testament right before the book of, of, I mean, the book of Ezra is his book. 
It's right before the book of Nehemiah. It's worth um, the read. While I was in Oregon, I just sat down and did it in one reading again to remind myself of it. It's a good book. So there's an assembly of the people. They call Ezra. They say, bring the Torah. So verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. And it specifically says, um, it says on that first day of the seventh month. I'm kind of hitting some important background here if you don't mind. I want to talk a little bit more about Tishri, this seventh month, because the first month of their religious calendar was in Nisan. That's why this is called the seventh month. But Tishri was the first month, the first month, not day, the first month of their civil calendar. And it was a really important month. I want to show you a diagram of what it was. It was important because three of the most prominent, important festivals in the Jewish community occurred in this month. The first two days was the feast, the celebration of Rosh Hashanah, which means the New Year. So that was their New Year celebration. On the 10th of that month, they celebrated Yom Kippur, which was the Day of Atonement, a very significant day in their history. If you want to read about it, it's in Leviticus 16 that describes it. And then they celebrated the feast, what they called the Feast of Sukkot. Um, we've called, I've heard it, you probably heard the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. I think if we want to understand the meaning, the best thing to call it for us in our modern language would be it's the Feast of Temporary Shelters. Um, so that's what they're doing. It's a seven-day celebration, and the Torah says that after the seven days, you end it with an eighth day with a special Sabbath. So here's what we're seeing in Nehemiah 8. They're at the beginning of this month, at this gathering at the beginning of the chapter. It's Rosh Hashanah, and they're, they're going to be moving through this month as we go. So back to verse 2, if you don't mind. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Okay, I promise we're going to really start moving through the text in a second. Let me say one more thing. The question is, there's men and women, but who are these people? Who are the, those that are able to understand? That's referring to the children of a lot of the men and the women that are there. Specifically, in the Jewish culture, they believe that a person is able to understand the law and is held accountable to it by God at the age of 13. You've heard of bar mitzvah, or for a female, it's a bat mitzvah. That's at the age of 13, and that means they are now subject to the law. That's what the mitzvah means. Mitzvah means the law or the commandment. A son or a daughter of the law means I'm now subject to it. So these are what that's, when it adds that, it's saying those who are th still maybe at home but are 13 and into their teenage years, they're also at this gathering. So verse 3, he read it aloud, Ezra, from daybreak till noon, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand the law. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Uh, so on that day, I want you to know, Ezra preached a five-hour sermon. And you thought you had it hard, right? <laughs> Imagine that. Good thing they didn't have NFL back then, right? After the service. Um, verse 4. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right side stood Matataiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah, and on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkajah, and Hashum, Hashbadanaah, and Zechariah, and Mushalam, and I just earned my year's salary just there. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. 
all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. That's why frequently when, when we publicly read the word, we stand, okay? They stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and they responded, amen, amen, which means so be it. Yes, we couldn't agree more of what you just prayed. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, and here's where I get my December uh, bonus. Actually, I don't get it, but that's fine. The Levites, Jeshua, Bonnie, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear, giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. <sighs> I got to take a breath after that. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul talks about that he has given the church people, men, women, people with the teaching gift, okay, with the teaching gift. A gift that exists essentially um, the same function that we just saw in verse 7, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restate verse 7, kind of in modern terms. So they read from the Bible, occasionally slamming on the brakes, right? Making it clear, giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. That's the purpose of a teaching gift. Verse 9, then Nehemiah the governor... And this is where we learn that among other things, when Artaxerxes sent him with letters, one of the letters was appointing him as governor of Judah, okay? So then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So the teaching ministry was effective. They're celebrating. Verse 13. On the second day of the month, so it's the second day of Rosh Hashanah, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the, te the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country, bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees, and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So as they're reading this, they come to the remembrance that in the Torah, that in this month is the feast of temporary shelters of Sukkot, and that it's only two weeks away, and so the people are like, we've got to go out and prepare for this and to gather things. And so they did to get everything they needed in on, the, on that 15th day of the month. So verse 16 skips ahead to that day. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that returned from exile built shelters and lived in them. Then we're told this, from the days of Joshua son of Nun until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. Let me say just a very brief thing. It doesn't mean they had never celebrated it before. We know from the book of Ezra they'd been celebrating it before, okay? But they had never celebrated with this level of gusto. That's what he's saying. Now, the last sentence of verse 17, and their joy was very great. I'd like for you to put a box around that. 
their joy was very great. We're going to come back to that in a minute. It's a significant part of this story. Let me tell you about this feast. So they're celebrating this feast of Sukkot, of um, temporary shelters. Exodus 23, 14 to 19, tells us of the three primary festivals that the Jewish people celebrated as a pilgrimage festival to Jerusalem that all the men were required to attend. And it was Passover in the, in the month of Nisan, the first month of their religious calendar. It was Pentecost 50 days later, or the Feast of Weeks, it is called. It's, so the Nisan, Passover celebrated the deliverance from Egypt, out of Egypt, their bondage. The Feast of Pentecost celebrated the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. And then the third pilgrimage feast was this temporary shelters, again, where they would go into Jerusalem. Um, you can read about this feast in more detail in Leviticus 23. 33 to 44, but the feast lasted seven days, had that special Sabbath tied onto the end of it, the eighth day. That word Sukkot in Hebrew means temporary shelter, so that's why they called it that. And the intent of this festival was to remind the people of God, His provision and taking care of them on their journey from Egypt to the promised land. Um, regarding this feast, here's what it says in Leviticus 23, 42 to 43. Live in temporary shelters for seven days, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. These shelters were three-sided structures with an open front and roof that was made of um, leafy branches. As you can see in the image here, um, I hope it's big enough, kind of him building one, but if you lived in Jerusalem in a home, the tops of their homes were flat, you would have built it up on top of your roof. If you were from outside of Jerusalem coming for this pet pilgrim festival, you would build your, your temporary shelter somewhere in the streets or in a courtyard or between buildings. The Jewish people still celebrate this to this day, still build these shelters during this feast. And I want you to know this festival was all about celebration and joy. It was all about rejoicing, um, which we just saw. I had you mark at the end of verse 17. In fact, the Jewish people called this festival the season of our joy, the season of our joy. And this feast was to celebrate the goodness of God in taking care of them through the wilderness. It, cel it celebrated His care for them, how He provided manna, how He gave them water when they needed it, how that He kept their shoes and clothes from wearing out for 40 years, for 40 years. It celebrated His keeping His promise to them to take them to the land, and it also celebrated his presence with them along the way. You can read about that in Exodus 33, that he would be with them. And it celebrated another thing. This was also their fall harvest festival. It was their Thanksgiving holiday, okay? And when you came to Jerusalem with a man, the man at least, but perhaps your family, you would bring the first gathering from your very first harvest, what they called the first fruits, with you, and you would make an offering of it in the temple out of gratitude for God's provision for you. And so this feast was also called by the Jewish people the Feast of Ingathering, because it's the, the celebration of the harvest. Now, back to the text, last verse of the chapter, verse 18. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. So, you see them celebrating it as they were commanded, finishing up on that eighth day. Now, what's the purpose, the point of this chapter? As I've read and thought about it, um, 
Again, if you remember, we're shifting now to where Nehemiah and Ezra with him are doing work within the community. It's about renewal of the community, reviving them as the people of God. And if you remember, in chapter 6, we learned a really important truth, that to be restored, it's essential that we have a strong base of operations, right? And I talked about that if you're going to do an assault, if you're going to take on Mount Everest, it is essential that you have that, that you have that base camp that's in support of you. And that that's what the community of God's people is to restore, is this is my base camp. And so over the next four weeks, as we look at this chapter and several other chapters, we're going to see laid out the essentials of a healthy base camp, what we need this body to be like if we're going to function well as restores. Some of the foundational, most essential things that we need to be practicing as a church body. And this morning, I want to focus on two of those, two of those essentials that I see in chapter 8. The first foundational practice is a commitment to the Word of God. Commitment to the Word of God. I just want to highlight some important things in this chapter related towards their posture towards God's Word. Um, First, they were hungry for the Word of God. Verse 1 says, they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses. They initiated him doing that. And then we're told in verse 5 that he opened the book, that he opened the book. So they've completed the wall, they've done this great work, and the first thing they're wanting is they're like, we want to hear teaching from the Word of God. They were hungry for it. Second, they were not only hungry, but they were instructed in the Word. Look at the first words of verse 3. It says, he read it aloud. We see in verse 8 that they read from the book of the law of God. But it gets even better. Look at verses 7 to 9. Here's where I really want you to break your pin out. Um, The Levites... And forgive me, but I'm not going to read all those names again, okay? The Levites instructed the people, circle those three words, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. Verse 8, they read from the book of the law, making it clear, circle those three words, making it clear, and giving the meaning, circle those three words, giving the meaning, so that the people understood what was being read, and underline that word, understood. Verse 9, then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, circle that word instructing, the second time we've seen that word in these verses. And then look at verse 12, then all the people went away to eat and to drink, to send portions of food, to celebrate with great joy, to celebrate, celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. And so underline those words, they now understood. They now understood. So the purpose of all this instruction, of their te- and the instruction, the teaching, is that the people would understand the role. Again, that's the role of a gifted teacher. And that's what happened. They understood. But even more important is the next thing I see in the text, and that is this. They were attentive to the word. They not only were hungry for it and instructed in it, but they were attentive. I mean, in verse 9, It says, all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Underline that word listened in verse 9. They had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Look at the last sentence of verse 3. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Underline listened attentively. And now look at verse 13. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. So underline, to give attention. So I love this about these people, that they're attentive to the word. They leaned into it. They listened carefully to it. They came to the law of God, to the Torah, 
wanting to learn with their head, but they wanted it to impact their hearts, right? They wanted it to go not just from here, but they wanted to experience God through it to be changed by it. So they were longing for it. But there's one final thing that capped it all off. They were not only attentive to his word, but they were responsive to it, right? They were responsive. They were obedient to the word. If you look at the last five verses of the chapter, verses 14 to 18, it says, they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns in Jerusalem. And then we read the challenge that the teachers made to the people. Go out into the hill country, bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees, from myrtle, palms, shade trees, to make temporary shelters as it is written. Underline that, as it is written. And then verse 16, here's the obedience. So the people went out, underline that. They went out and they brought back, underline that, branches. And they built, underline built, themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company, underline that, the whole company that had returned from the exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this, and their joy was very great. And then verse 18, day after day, underline that, day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, underline that, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. So they came to the word, not only to learn it, to have it move them in the heart, but they came, to the, they came to the Torah, to the word of the Lord, to put their hand to it and to obey it, right? And what's the point of being hungry for the word? Maybe I'm hungry for it. Maybe I'm instructed in it. I learn things from it. I'm eager. Uh, I'm attentive to it. But what's the point of all that if I don't obey it, right? So that obedience is so important. You know, we've already seen in the first six chapters that Nehemiah was a man of the word of God. Have we not seen that? that he was a man of the word. But not just him, Ezra was a man of the word. In the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10, it says this. Ezra had devoted himself. I love that word. He had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So much like their leader, Governor Nehemiah, much like Ezra, their, their leader, priest, the people were developing a hunger and a desire to make the Word of God central to who they were. And 12, I don't need to tell you this. The Word of God needs to be central to who we are. It's an essential for us to be a healthy base camp. We should be people who are, let me, let me bring this up here. We should be people who are daily in the Word, in the Word, in such a way that the Word of God would be in us. Not just in the word, but we want it to be in us. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3.16, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, right? We want it to be in us. The word of God is to be the primary voice in our lives, not our culture, not my opinion, not my experience, right? Not my tradition, but the word of God alone. It's to be the guiding principle of our belief and practice, and that is our commitment at 12th, I want you to know. And that's why every Sunday morning we say that we long to become a, what kind of community? 
a biblical community of kingdom people who are joining God in the restoration of all things, one person, one place at a time. And that's the commitment of the spiritual leaders here. But for this to truly take root, it's got to be your commitment, right? It's got to be your commitment to be in the Word of God. And particularly, it's got to be the commitment of a key group of people. So I want you to look at verse 13 again. This is a very significant verse. On the second day of the month, can you read these next few words with me? The heads of all the families. The heads of all the families. I would like you to draw a circle around that. The heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. So on the second day, it's the heads of the family that show up to give attention. They gathered because they knew that as a head of a household, it was their primary responsibility to be the teacher's of the Word of God to their family, to their children, and to their spouse, right? Um, if we want to be a people centered on the Word of God, we have to have families that are centered on the Word of God. Do you know that? We have to have families that are centered on the Word of God. And this won't happen if our heads of household do not take that seriously. We have families with different heads of households. A lot of them are dads. But if you're a head of a household, this applies to you. But I especially want to speak to our dads for just a minute. Um, Heads of household, dads, please hear me. The only way that you're going to lead your children and your wife, your spouse, or if you're just a head of a household that happens to be a woman, the way you're going to lead your children into a life-giving relationship with God through Jesus. And in a relationship with Jesus that's steeped in His Word is the Word of God has to be central in your life. You have to not only be in it, but the Word of God has to be in you. And if I were to take... Wayne Cordero, um, an illustration he gave, if you were assume this is a Bible, I mean this is the Word of God. You don't just feed your children this way, and this is a temptation for pastors, by the way. I just have you every night, we're doing something in the Word of God, whether it's a children's Bible or whatever. It can't just be this, it's got to be this. right? So we've got to be a people of the Word, and our heads of household need to be people of the Word. So enough said on that. Um, I'm going to hit this quick because I want to get to what's a major theme of this chapter. If, if like Nehemiah, if you devote yourself to the Word of God, you're going to see that it does two things in your life. They're in verses 9 and 10. First, it brings conviction. If you look at the last part of verse 9, the last part of verse 9, we're told that the Levites said to the people at the end of that verse, do not mourn or weep, for the people have been weeping as they listened to the word of the, the law. Put a bracket around mourn, a bracket around weep, a bracket around weeping, in verse 10, you see the word grieve. They were grieved. Put a bracket around grieve. Verse 11, you see the word grieve again. Put a bracket around that. I mean, are those not strong words? Okay, those are strong words. Because as they read the law, they were convicted of their sin. And that's what happens when you come to the word of God. You're convicted of the things that you've done that you should not have done, the sins you've committed. But you're also committed of the sins of omission, the things you should have done but you did not do. Things like loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. And loving your neighbor as yourself. 
But it not only brought conviction, the second effect is, is the Word of God brings joy and celebration. And that's why they say in verse 9, they say, this day is holy to the Lord. Don't mourn or weep. And look at verse 10. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy. Put a box around that. Put a box. That's really important. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Put a box around that. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And look at verse 12. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy. Put a box around that, to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that have been made known to them. So the ultimate goal of God's word, here's the ultimate goal of his word. Yes, it convicts, but the ultimate goal is that it would bring joy into our lives. That is the ultimate goal of the Word of God. And we saw that this past summer in Psalm 19, right? That the Word of God, it gives light to the eyes, it makes the wise simple, but it restores the soul, and it brings joy to the heart, we are told, right? It is more precious than the sweetest honey and the most precious of gold. That's the ultimate aim of the Word of God. David said in Psalm 19, yes, by it I am warned there is conviction, but in keeping it there is great reward, there is joy. David Powelson said, the scripture that assesses also blesses, it also blesses. And our ultimate experience of scripture ought to be Jeremiah's in chapter 15 and verse 16 of his book, where he said, when your words came, I ate them, they were my joy and my heart's delight. They were my joy and my heart's delight. So the Word of God should always end in joy as I bring my life into alignment with His Word and the way He's created the universe. Trust me, life, uh, it's not going to be perfect, there's no guarantees, but your life will go much better and it will be a source of joy to you. And this leads me to the second essential practice of a healthy community, celebration. How many sermons have you heard on that topic? Probably not many. This theme of joy and celebration, I want you to know it is central to the emphasis of the last half of the chapter. It is central. We've already put a box around in joy in verse 10, for the joy of the Lord of your strength in verse 10. We've already put a box around celebrate with great joy in verse 12, and a box around and their joy was very great in verse 17. I want to mark one more place, and it's in verse 18. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God, they celebrated the festival for seven days. Put a box around celebrated and a box around that word festival. They celebrated the festival for seven days. They had just finished the wall. It is the month of Tishri, the first month of the new civil year, and it was time to celebrate. It was time to celebrate. You find the word festive one time, festival one time in here. Our word festive is, is related to that, right? Festive. The word celebrate three times in this text, verses 12, 17, and 18. So we've already boxed these. And we find the word joy or a form of it four times in the text. Twice in verse 10, once in verse 12, and once in verse 17. In fact, verse 12 says great joy. Would you circle great joy? I know you've got a box there already, but circle great joy. And then verse 17 says their joy was very great. Circle very great in that box. Do you get the sense that the last half of this chapter was a big party? Do you get that sense? That it was a big celebration? Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 16 about this festival. Be joyful at your festival. 
For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all your work and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Have you ever heard that anywhere, by the way? Your joy will be made complete? Yeah, Jesus in John 15, when he says, if you abide in me, and if you abide in the Father, and if you keep his word, then my joy will be in you, and your joy will be complete. Just almost like an echo of this. Again, this feast of temporary shelters was called by the Hebrew people the season of our joy. Does that not sound like Christmas and Thanksgiving, the holiday season that we're coming into right now? And I want to show you something really significant in this text. And I know because it's repeated three times. The first is in the middle of verse 9. We're going to do our first squiggly line. We've not done squigglies at this point. I've been doing, having you do too much in this text. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Put a squiggly under that. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. And toward the end of verse 10, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not, do not grieve. Put a squiggly under that. And the end of verse 11, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Put a squiggly line under that. I don't know about you, but for a long time, when I thought of holy or holiness, I thought of difficulty and drudgery. That's what I thought. And I think some of that came from the fact that I became a believer in a very legalistic church. I had no conception for a long time that holiness is meant to be, holiness and joy are meant to be bedfellows, not holiness and heaviness. Holiness and joy are meant to be bedfellows. If you take the coin, there it is, if you take the coin that has holiness on one side, what you find on the other side is joy, is joy. Thomas Kelly in his Testament of Devotion wrote this, the life that intends to be wholly obedient, wholly submissive, wholly listening is astonishing in its completeness. Its joys are ravishing, its peace profound. That's why that all-important last sentence of verse 10, and especially the powerful concluding phrase we put the box around, this day is holy to our Lord, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Would you say that with me? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Put stars by that box. That is so significant. In fact, that is the most quoted verse in the book of Nehemiah. The most quoted verse in the book of Nehemiah. Think about that a minute. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So 12th, joy and celebration is intended by God to be central to the life of the believer. Let me say that again. Joy and celebration is intended to be central to the life of the believer. I already hit Jesus in John 15. In Galatians 5, we're told that one of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Is joy, right? In Philippians 4.4, Paul commands that we rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. And in Romans 4.17, what is to me one of the most profound verses of the Scripture, Paul wrote this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, if you were to go to Latin America or to Africa, you would find cultures, you guys, I mean, you've been there, you already know, you're going to find cultures and churches that are good at celebrating. We saw that a little bit this morning, and they were holding back because it's hard to sing to a bunch of white folk, trust me. Like, 
like these North American and people of other color, right? But us North Americans aren't very good at this, but they're really good at that. Um, we have much to learn from them. C.S. Lewis, more than most modern Christian writers, he knew the importance of joy and celebration. In his book, Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer, he said that joy is the serious business of heaven. Don't you love that quote? In fact, the book that details his conversion is called Surprised by, what? Surprised by Joy. And in his, his essay, The Weight of Glory, in my opinion, the single greatest thing that he ever wrote, in The Weight of Glory, he wrote that our feast should be as important as our fasts. Our feast should be as important as our fasts. And I want you to know, here's why this is so important, because after the fall, the default human bent after the fall is when I approach religion, I tend to approach it with asceticism and legalism. Asceticism and legalism. Even those of us who have followed Jesus can struggle with that. I once knew a fellow believer who struggled with the fact that on our major holidays that there were feasts going on, a lot of food, a lot of money spent on it, big meals at Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, big cookout on Independence Day. But you know, that's the point of great festivals for them and for us. They're intended to celebrate God and His good gifts and His bounty. That's why uh, the Horn of Plenty at Thanksgiving. Because remember, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 17, that God is the one who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, for our enjoyment. I want to wrap this up with a story. Um, I can't wait to get to these guys. You guys have been so patient. Uh, you know, God has wired joy and celebration into us. That's why our children are so full of joy and play until, sadly, life drains it out of them, right? On the last night of the missions conference, there were five or six children up here dancing during the worship because that's how God has wired us. I want to conclude with a story that's told by John Orberg in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted. Some time ago, I was giving a bath to our three children. I had a custom of bathing them together, more to save time than anything else. I knew that eventually I would have to stop the group bathing, but for the time it seemed efficient. Johnny was still in the tub, Laura was out and safely in her pajamas, and I was trying to get Mallory dried off. Mallory was out of the water, but was doing what has come to be known in our family as the D-da-day dance. This consists of her running around and around in circles, singing over and over again, D-da-day, D-da-day. It's a relatively simple dance expressing great joy. When she's too happy to hold it in any longer, when words are inadequate to give voice to her euphoria, she has a dance to release her joy, and she does the D-da-day. On this particular occasion, I was irritated. Mallory, hurry, I prodded, so she did. She began running in circles faster and faster, chanting D-da-day more rapidly. <laughs> no, Mallory, that's not what I meant. Stop with the D-da-day stuff and get over here so I can dry you off. Hurry. And then she asked a profound question. Why? From the eyes of babes, right? I had no answer. I had nowhere to go, nothing to do, no meetings to attend, no sermon to write. I was just used to hurrying. I was just so used to hurrying, so preoccupied with my own little agenda, so trapped in this rut of moving from one task to another, that here was life, here was joy, here was an invitation to, dance, to the dance right in front of me, and I was missing it. I realized that night that I tend to divide my minutes into two categories, living and waiting to live. Most of my life is spent in transit, trying to get somewhere, 
waiting to begin, driving someplace, standing in line, waiting for a meeting to end, trying to get a task completed, worrying about something bad that might happen, or being angry about something that did happen. These are all moments when I am not likely to be fully present, not to be aware of the voice and purposes of God. Life is not that way for Mallory. She just lives. While she's taking a bath, it's a dee day moment. And after she's dry, it's be time for another. Life for her is a series of dee-da-day moments. Not every moment of life is happy, of course. There are still occasions that call for tears, skin knees, cranky towel bears, but each moment is pregnant with possibility. Mallory doesn't miss any of them. She is teaching me about joy. How many of us needed to hear that? How many of us needed to hear that? How many of us need to learn again that God intends life with him to be a life of joy and celebration? How many of us need to hear that? So this chapter is so valuable because it teaches me that if we're to be restorers, we need a healthy church, right? A healthy base camp of operations. And in chapter 8, I learned that two of those essentials are the word of God and celebration. So some quick questions. How's your relationship with God these days? In particular, how's your relationship with Him through His Word? Are you daily in it? Daily? Are you being attentive? Are you obeying it, putting it into practice? Are you not only in His Word, but is His Word in you, changing and transforming you, making you more loving and kind and gentle and joyful? So how are you in relation to the Word? Heads of household, dads in particular, are you taking seriously your role as a spiritual leader in your home? If you were to give yourself a grade on that, what grade would you give yourself? And finally, on a scale of 1 to 10, how's your joy level these days? How's your joy level? In your Christian life, do you experientially get verse 10, that the joy of the Lord is my strength? Do you get that in your gut? Or are you like, I'm actually pretty joyless right now? Do you know how to celebrate, how to really celebrate? To enjoy the good things God has given you, to be grateful. So, quick application. I think the first obvious is daily getting God's word so his word gets in you. Heads of household, you get in the word of God so it's in you, so you can be the primary one leading your family into the ways of God, right? And let's learn to celebrate. It's so easy when you're an adult to take yourself and life so seriously. Trust me, I know this. So get out and play more. Today's going to be a great day. Get outside and go play, okay? Father, thank you for um, this day that we could actually look into this text and see not only is the word, your word to be central in our lives, but Lord, you want us to be a people who celebrate and have joy, and uh, I can be so serious. Help me, help all of us to learn that and to learn what it means to really celebrate you and to live a joyful life, because people need to see that. And so, Lord, we just pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, 12th, may you go be sent, yeah, be sent with the word of God, not just before you, but in you, and full of joy, okay? You're sent.